Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. This week, I talked to the writer and broadcaster Peter Stanford about his new book, Angels, A Visible and Invisible History, which is published by Hodder. The book looks at the origins of angels in religious thought and asks why, in a secular age, they remain more compelling and comforting to many than God. You can buy it at the Church House Bookshop for the offer price of £16. Go to chbookshophymnsam.co.uk or call 020-7799-4064. And just to say that all the talks from last week's Theology Slam event are available to view at churchtimes.co.uk slash theology slam. And if you don't subscribe to the Church Times, try five issues for a fiver. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Could you start by talking a little bit, Peter, about your experience of angels growing up? You described it in the book. Um, you obviously grew up as a, a Catholic in Liverpool. I grew up as a Catholic. Actually on the Wirral, someone pointed out the other day. And uh, there was always a great thing uh, when we were children about, um, about whether you grew up in the centre of Liverpool. My mother was born in the centre of Liverpool. And, um, and for her, moving over to the Wirral, because uh, it, it is over, over the River Mersey, uh, for her that was going up in the world. But when we, um, when we went back and I'd seen my cousins in the Wirral, they used to call us woollybacks. <laughs> You're woollyback? Um, if you lived, in, uh, lived on the Wirral. So yes, I grew up in Liverpool. And we, as I say, all the guardian angel prayers. Guardian angel, uh, guardian angel, my guardian dear, whom God's love commits me here over this night to be at my side. And all of that. So I grew up with that. was absolutely part of it all. We said those at church. And um, my mum was disabled. My mum had multiple sclerosis. And uh, she used one of those cars that people of a certain age might remember. They were all sky blue. They had three wheels. And they were called uh, Invercars or invalid carriages. Um, however much you hate PC, um, I think most of us would agree that to call anybody invalid or invalid is, um, is a pretty terrible thing. Anyway, so she had one of those. And she, the idea was that you got into it and you pulled your wheelchair in. You sat on a seat, but you pulled your wheelchair in afterwards. You couldn't be bothered with doing that. So she used to drive drive off in it and leave the wheelchair on the drive. My dad didn't come from Liverpool, had a fairly negative view of Liverpoolians and was quite pessimistic, it would be fair to say. And so he told her that when she went out and left her chair there, someone would steal it. It was inevitably what was going to happen because everyone in Liverpool was a scally as far as, as far as he was concerned. And she just used to say to him, oh, Reg, my guardian angel's looking over it. And, you know, for 15 years, that wheelchair was always there when she got back. So we believed instinctively in guardian angels. Um, they did an exhibition a couple of years ago in Glasgow. I think it's called St Mungo's Exhibition, a uh, 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 Museum of Religious Life or whatever. And they had this great quote from um, Billy Connolly in there. It was all about angels. And he said that um, uh, in one of his routines, he talked about how he had a little um, angel figure that he had on the dashboard of his car, and it was called a parking angel. And it was meant to mean when you're looking for a parking space, you um, you always uh, found one. He says, I don't believe in any of that, but all I can tell you is every time I'm looking for a parking, a parking space, the angel finds me one. And so I suppose it's just that sort of received thing that I didn't really think about it at all. And... Um, and I suppose going forward, I mean, if you look at a lot of the things that I've written about over the last sort of two decades or whatever, they're all things that I grew up with, really, and, and just took as read. And then I got to an age where I thought, I wonder if that's true. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a book about the devil, uh, the idea of the devil, because I went to a Christian brother's school and we were constantly told we were going to hell for whatever minor misdemeanour we caused, and looked at the idea of that. I wrote it when my mother died. I wrote a book about heaven, because when she died... I thought, so what do I think's happened to her now then? I thought, oh, well, she's gone to heaven because that's what I've grown up believing. I thought, do I mean that? And what do I mean by that? And so I suppose angels is very much a kind of uh, a, a, a logical conclusion. Two things led me to think about it as an adult. The first, a, a, a few years ago, 
I wrote a biography of a woman called Bronwyn Astor, who was um, a very famous model at the end of the 1950s. She was Balman's muse. She married Lord Astor, went to live at Clifton, and they got uh, they got brought down, as it were, by the um, Profumo scandal. And then she lived until uh, last year, indeed, um, and uh, had a very profound religious belief. And I remember her telling me, as I was writing the biography, about giving birth to her first daughter, and had a very difficult birth. And, um, and the day afterwards... Um, looked in the fireplace in the room at Clifton and saw effectively Jacob's Ladder with angels going backwards and forwards. And when she told me, I said, but you mean that kind of figuratively, don't you? And obviously you had a lot of drugs because of mm. difficult labour and you were probably not quite yourself. She said, no, no, they were there. I thought, oh. And, and it was that thing of trying to uh, reconcile this very kind of rational, in many ways, woman who was telling me something that I found irrational. So I thought, what do I think about that? Oh, I don't really know. Anyway, um, I, my day job is I write features for the Daily Telegraph. And, um, and I was sent along a few years ago to interview a woman called Lorna Byrne, who is an Irish... Uh, uh, um, <laughs> I think it was called an Irish mother of four from County Kildare in the Daily Telegraph. The Telegraph loves these sort of things. But anyway, and um, she'd written a book called Angels in My Hair. Uh, which was a huge bestseller, huge word-of-mouth bestseller all over the world. And it was all about how, um, growing up, she'd always been able to see people's guardian angels, three, three paces behind them as spirals of light, and how she conversed with the angels. So I went and interviewed her, and I suppose I started off thinking, there must be a catch in this, she must be cynically making money, or she must be deluded. And actually, perfectly reasonable, sincere, grounded, humble, liked her, liked her. She made it all sound really, really normal. So I wrote a piece saying that, really, uh, which wasn't quite what the editor wanted me to say, but anyway. And um, and then a little bit afterwards, her office rang, and because she'd been so successful, she had an office. Her office rang and said she was doing a big event at um, Friends House, the Quaker thing in the centre of London. I think it's a thousand seats or something. And would I go and interview her on stage? So I did, and we had the same conversation again, and I felt the same things. But the thing that really got me that night was at the end of it, virtually no one left. They all queued up for hours, because I waited and watched them all to see her. And I... Um, I was really interested in what they wanted from her, really. They didn't just want the story or the book. They wanted something more. And the something more they wanted wasn't what I, in my own uh, sort of fallen state, had asked, which is, what does my guardian angel look like then? She told me she could only see it behind water, which made me convinced I was going to drown quite soon. Anyway, um, uh, so she... um, she, they weren't asking her that. They weren't asking for a blessing. They weren't asking to connect with their guardian angel. They weren't. They simply wanted her to kind of... She gave each of them a hug. That's all she did. And I talked to some of them afterwards. And what they said is that this is something that they had felt and and felt around them, angels, the presence of angels, uh, for all of their lives. And no one had ever validated it before. They'd never really come across anyone else who talked about it. But they, they felt this sort of connection with her and that somehow it was bringing it out into the open. So I suppose what that experience made me think, I thought, so what do I think about angels? And is this i mean we you know we live in this age of 24 hour news where everything is covered and analyzed to uh, you know ad nauseam but i thought so is there something going on here are people are people drawn to these things that in some ways and then i thought about all those shelves that you see um, you know, when I very tragically go into Waterston, branches of Waterston, into the religion section to see if my own books are there. And there's always an angel shelf there. And you look at these books and think, what are these about? And if someone's buying them if they're here. So I thought, I'd, I'm going to look into this and see what I find. And one of the first things I found were these surveys that have been done in the last couple of years um, mm-hmm. that showed that one in three people believe they have a guardian angel. 
Um, so rather like my mother, um, one in ten people, rather like Bronwyn Astor or Lorna Byrne, believe that they have seen or experienced an angel. Um, and of those, uh, 7% of atheists said they believed in angels. So, so you thought, that's mad. So they don't believe in God, in God but they're not materialists in the sense of they do believe in a spiritual world of some kind. That, 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 that would seem, that, that, that was where I went with that one. And also just in terms of church numbers, in terms of people, well not just, I mean I think I'm re I really can't be, be bothered with attendance figures because they're, they're, they're so misleading. But even if um, surveys where people are asked if they are very or fairly religious, it usually comes out about a quarter. I'm not very good at maths, but one in three is 33%. So there's something going on there. Yeah. There's something that angels are speaking to. And so I, what I want, so the book is really about what are people speaking, what, what is that speaking to? Is it just about now? Or can you trace it back through, through history? And you think there might be, belief in angels um, might coincide with a sort of disenchantment with organised religion, or that it's, it's a classic belief for a kind of postmodern era where we don't want to necessarily sign up to something or to doctrines or to have rules imposed on us but this sort of personal belief there's still a sense that um, life has a purpose there's somebody out there in the universe I think at its simplest organised religion isn't doing very well at the moment and a lot of those wounds are self-inflicted so in the Catholic Church we've had this scandal of clergy abuse and people walk out the door and I completely understand why they walk out the door I sometimes wonder why I don't walk out the door because they're handling it really badly so um, that doesn't mean because you walk out the door because you don't like the way the institution is dealing with that you don't retain a kind of a religious literacy, a religious need, or whatever. So, angels is is, is one way to go with that. Um, but I think you're also right. I think we live in fairly anti-institutional times anyway. So uh, let's quote Michael Gove there in the Brexit referendum: "Don't trust the experts." Um, so people don't trust the experts, um, and I think people. They're suspicious of authority, really. So, um, out of churches, and angels are rather perfectly calibrated for that because um, they've sort of gone freelance. So, if you think of your your Victorian church with all those burn Jones stained glass windows, angels have taken flight out of that, and now they're on shelves in Waterstones. They're in people's imagination. I'm doing a talk in a few weeks' time at the Mind Body Spirit uh, three day event. At, um, at London's Olympia, uh, attended by thousands. And if you look down the list of other people appearing there or, or doing things there, angel therapies, angel retreats, read your angel cards, uh, there's a, I'm not going to say industry because that's cynical and I don't really believe these people are cynical, but it, it's a need that is out there and it isn't part of an institution, it isn't tied into any of those things, but obviously these things come from institutions. And I think once you start looking back through history, I mean, even the, I mean, the logical place for us to start, because we're Western Christian mm -hmm. civilization, is the, uh, the Bible. So angels appear at moments of stress. Mm -hmm. So, right, the very first appearance of an angel in the book of Genesis are the cherubs who are put outside the gates of the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve have been, have been chucked out. So, you know, difficult time, but upheaval in Eden or whatever, along comes an angel. Um, you know, all through the, 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 the journey that the early books of the Old Testament tell of the Jews making their way to the Promised Land as part of the covenant, every time there is a reverse, an angel appears, mm -hmm. sometimes to kind of comfort the Jews, 
but often to smite their enemies. So, you know, there's 185,000 Assyrians who are murdered by the angel of the Lord, uh, which is rather different from your cuddly uh, uh, guardian angel uh, on the shelves in Waterstones. Mm. Um, uh, they're there. Um, but they're still quite shadowy figures and also quite terrifying figures sometimes. Um, you know, I, there's the kind of whole Isaiah thing of the, the seraph with his six, his six wings. But times of, of, of stress and strain and change in particular. So where we get our named angels, the ones that we know, Michael, Raphael and Gabriel, are in those very late books, uh, which are, uh, I always get very confused about my canoni- canonicality. Can you say canonicality? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we've got the book of Daniel, which mm-hmm. is definitely in Catholic Bibles. It's in Anglican Bibles as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, book of Tobit, 39 Articles wasn't keen on the book of Tobit. So, no, you don't do the book. Oh, poor you. It's lovely, the book of Tobit. It's a really nice story. But in Catholic Bibles. Yeah. And the book of Enoch, which was in, in absolutely no one's Bible at yeah. all, um, apart from the Ethiopian <laughs> Orthodox. But, but all Jewish books of that period. And why were they exploring angels in those? Because it was a post-Babylonian exile period where Jews felt they'd lost their connection with God, where Jews felt that they were being invaded, first of all, by the, the kind of the Greekoid uh, people who were trying to Hellenize Jews, and then by... So it's times of trouble, and, and people turn to angels then. Beginning of the Christian Christian uh, Gospels, um, you know, Mary's in trouble, frankly. Um, mm. And who turns up to tell her that? An angel beginning of the Quran, what happens? Uh, the angel Gabriel again, but Jibril in Arabic, comes to, 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 to Muhammad in the cave on Mount Hera, times of trouble. St. Peter's in prison in the Acts of the Apostles, an angel comes and gets him out. Even St. Paul hasn't, he doesn't really like angels. Uh, but there's an angel comes when he's, he's shipwrecked in Malta. So angels in times of trouble, what are we in at the moment? Um, really, I know this isn't meant to be about politics, but you know, we're, we're not really in the happiest of times, are we, in the world? I think an awful lot of people who believe that we, we were living in, a, in, a, a, in, in relatively stable times, with, uh, everything's up in the air at the moment. And I think, that, again, there's an appeal of angels in that moment. So I think it's a, a very, very timely thing now, these freelance angels. You quote Jane Williams saying, angels give us a way of expressing our longing for beings who are more powerful than ourselves and who care for us. Um, as I was interesting what you write about the, uh, the yearning for the transcendent, so that's still there in our culture. But why, I mean, angels, as you describe in the book, are there in the major religions, particularly, especially in Christianity throughout the Bible. Is there anything the church can do to kind of harness the um, appeal of angels and to say, hang on, this does come from, from our tradition? Or, or to... Can Christian believers, you know, reasonably orthodox believers, um, interact with angels in some way, or is it that the church needs to be getting people to shift from, you know, angels to God? Well, I think in very simple terms, uh, one of the terrible arrogances of the modern age is we look back on on the medieval times and think everyone was really stupid then. Um, they weren't stupid at all. What they what they understood far more clearly than we do is the um, is 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 the, there are no boundaries between the visible and the invisible, between the metaphysical and the and the physical, between kind of poetry and reality. So when people talked about angels, then I mean clearly in a, in a popular folklorish way, people would believe that they were seeing them. But in a sense, they understood that they were expressing something more. I mean, it's that kind of mad idea that you know medieval people believed in heaven and they, they you know the first astronomers would be looking up into the clouds so so therefore they were dumb they were dumb they didn't really understand it I mean I think they understood very well that it was a, a way of expressing something ineffable something beyond words we're trying to find words for it. so I think we understood that and so I think that sense in which angels as Jacob's Ladder uh, 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 tells us in really clear terms. What Jacob's Ladder does is it connects heaven to earth. And I think there is that sense in us all, that sense of yearning, as Jane Williams talks about, 
for there to be something more, uh, to understand the something. I think we sense the something more, the something transcendent, the something other, the something out there, uh, which institutional religion used to kind of quantify um, and, and, and perhaps talks about less now, and which we used to understand much better through the, the language and the imagery that we used. And what has changed? Well, really what's changed is the 17th century scientific revolution, 18th century enlightenment, that basically told us that um, for, thing, for things to be worthy of our belief, a word that we use a lot and I'm never quite sure what we mean by it, but to be worthy of our belief, you have to be able to put it in a test tube under a microscope and show that it is true. And what religion ought to have done is had the courage of its convictions and say, actually, we're not playing that game. But I think what religion did in the 18th, 19th, 20th century, and, and even in some branches up to now, is say, no, it is all true. It is really, really all true. All those things that happened are true. And if you don't believe them, you just lack faith. And, and, it, and it damns that whole transcendent side of religion. And I think angels express it so well, and they still express it in a kind of modern scientific age. So they express that idea that, that they can be both invisible forces, which of course is what you know, Aquinas thought they were, and a lot of the medieval angelologists thought they weren't, they weren't silly, they weren't counting angels dancing on pinheads, right. Aquinas didn't say that. But what they were trying to understand was the working of the world, of the cosmos, and of those things. I mean, it was perfectly legitimate, and they thought in the same way that an anthropologist now might look at an orangutan and say, that's why human beings as they are. They thought if they looked at angels, they think that's why the world is as it is. People understood that, and angels were both visible and invisible. They were all around us, the illustrations were there. In a way, um, Aquinas in uh, the Summa Theologica, when he looks at looks at uh, looks at angels, is giving them personalities that they can't eat, that they're made of compressed air. All of those things. He's he's kind of building them up so we can see them. They're, they're sort of visible and invisible. They understood what we've lost a sense of all of that. Um, can we get it back? Should, given that uh, 33% of people believe in the guardian angel and 25% of us are religious, yes, there is clearly an opportunity there. There are pitfalls as well, though. What Christianity has always, always, always taught is that angels were never human beings. They were created before human beings. They are celestial beings. They sit around the face of God. I think the modern kind of religion light, anti-institutional, we don't really want a lot of dogma around that, we'll make of angels what we want to do. And we often think angels are our kind of reincarnated dead relatives. And I think if I'm a vicar in that situation, particularly with a child, and the, you know it's the child's funeral, and the parents want to encapsulate that idea, not only that a child has gone to be with the angel, but is an angel, what do you do in that situation? Do you say, it's not actually what we believe and this is a Christian church and can we just tone that down or do you go along with it? So I think there are problems to that as well. And of course, what one of the reasons that people want angels and they, like, they respond so well to angels is that angels don't make any, any kind of uh, um, demands on us in terms of doctrine. They don't say you know, you can't have a same-sex marriage and believe in me. And the church does. I believe that's wrong. And the Catholic Church, of course, says you can't have a woman priest. I mean, I think that's wrong as well. But I would defend to the, the end of the earth their, their right to have rules, to have some sort of structure in which to put us. Because I think as human beings, as well as needing the emotional support of angels, we need a structure. I think we, we all know, I'm not going to go into my personal sins, but we all know ourselves well enough to know that we need a bit of structure somewhere. So I think for the church to to embrace these freelance angels to try and bring them in house as it were they would have to embrace a bit of that oh let's drop all these this rule but let's not do too many rules and i think the church would lose just as many people by doing that as well thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website 
churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.